Welcome to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast with your host, Audrey McLaughlin. Hey friends, welcome to episode 025 of the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. We have a really exciting episode today. In fact, well, it's exciting for me. I think these might be my favorite type of episodes. So if you guys have questions, send them to me. I absolutely love answering the questions that you want to know about rather than me being like, hey, you know, this probably sounds like something good to talk about. I want to know like what you're experiencing with your horses. I tend to talk about the things that I see in the field, the things that I see with my horses, the same things that I see with my client horses. But I want to know what are you dealing with? This is your opportunity to get your questions answered. And today that's exactly what we're doing. We are doing an Ask Audrey episode. We're going to talk about fat absorption. We're going to talk about the reason for hair mineral analysis versus like hay testing or soil testing or any of those things and when which one of those is appropriate. We're going to talk about why doing belly lifts can actually strengthen the dysfunction in your horse and not improve their top line and help kissing spine and all of those things. And we're going to talk about some of the implications, the long-term effects of tie back surgery, particularly in relation to the vagus nerve and the digestive system. So buckle up. It's going to be a good one. All right. The first question is from Lindsay and Lindsay writes in, dear Audrey, you mentioned that horses don't have gallbladders and therefore have a more difficult time digesting fats. You specifically mentioned not giving your horse canola oil. If horses cannot digest fat, then why is there so much fat in feeds? Is there an oil that you recommend? Awesome question, Lindsay. And so I did say something like that. Um, I believe what I said, and I could be wrong here, but I believe what I said is that canola oil is not effective as an anti-inflammatory oil. And what I see going wrong is people giving too much of their oils, whether it's canola or anything else at a time. And because horses don't have gallbladders, they're not meant to digest a a dump, I guess you'd call it a big, uh, a lot of fat at, in one sitting. So the reason why horses don't have gallbladders is because they're designed to eat all the time. Whereas humans sit down, eat a meal, and then may not eat for three or four hours or more, and then sit down and have another meal. So they have to, humans, we, <laughs> they as if I'm not human, but humans have to have a bile storage. Now, horses don't have that bile storage. The liver constantly dumps bile into the small intestine because horses are designed to graze all day. It's one of the reasons why I'm a huge proponent of a forage diet and horses having free access to hay. Now, that being said, what tends to happen is people hear that we need to give omega-3s, omega-6s, whatever it might be to our horses. There's all kinds of new fancy oils that come out and they either give too much. You can tell if they give too much because um, the stool will have a shiny effect to it. And then the next step is the stool will be loose, right? You can give a horse too much oil. Now, even though horses don't have a gallbladder, they statistically can effectively absorb about 80 to 90% of the fat presented to their intestines. Now, it seems kind of counterintuitive that a horse who is, you know, designed with such a low level of natural fat in their diet would have such high propensity to be able to digest fat. But um, they think they're, they don't, they're not really sure a lot of these humans uh, studies haven't been translated to equine yet. But um, even though there's no dietary minimum for a horse, 
um, they do get quite a bit of omega-3 and omega-6 from a natural grazing or forage diet. So um, you can think of a horse on a diet of just fresh grass. They would get about 17 grams per kilogram of omega-3 and about four grams per kilogram of omega-6 if they were consuming fresh grass all day. And of course, there's some variation there by weight and size and type of grass and all those kind of things. Um, The short answer is, and it's really kind of been a long answer already, but the short answer is, is that there are different types of fats. There's long chain fats, there's short chain fats, and there's medium chain fats. And they're each uh, absorbed in a different way and each put to use in a different way. So if you're going to feed your horse fats. If you're going to feed your horse canola oil, which is I think where this um, suggestion, this question came from, then know that canola oil is giving that horse more calories, but not providing anti-inflammatory impact. Okay. For an anti-inflammatory impact, you're going to want to do something like a stabilized ground flax, which can also be overdone, but has so many more benefits than just a straight canola oil. Um, But in, in, the long run, long chain uh, fatty acids, you can think long chain oil and water don't mix. Um, and so they take more work to be used by the horse. Short chain fatty acids, which is what canola oil is, they're more water soluble than long chain fatty acids. They don't require bile for digestion. And so they tend to be absorbed directly into the bloodstream. Now with something like canola oil, which is a highly inflammatory oil, you don't necessarily want that going directly into the bloodstream, right? And then medium chain fatty acids or medium length fats, uh, those are also very soluble and absorbed directly into the blood, if not taken up by the liver. So you want to be careful with those as well. Rather than going through all the different oils that are possibly for sale for you to give your horse, what I would suggest is to think about them in terms of short, medium, and long chain fatty acids, what your goal is with the oil, and then take the oil like canola oil and just Google, is canola oil a short chain fatty acid, a long chain fatty acid, etc. If you have more specific questions, like you're trying to figure out the nutrition plan, you can reach out to me on Instagram, you can send a contact through my forum at equineenergymed. Uh, dot com or um, you like I said DM me on Instagram or you can head to the consultations page and grab a nutrition consultation for your horse. I can do those anywhere in the world. All right, question number two comes from Heather. Heather says, "Hey Audrey, you always talk about testing before supplementing. Thank you for trying to save us crazy horse ladies money. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I'm also saving this myself crazy horse lady money, <laughs> crazy horse lady and crazy supplement lady money. Uh, why do you prefer hair tissue or equine tissue mineral analysis versus hay analysis or soil analysis? Heather, that's a really great question. And thank you for writing in. It's not that I prefer them over one another necessarily, but there is a time and a place for each one of them. So I see that the most value tends to be from a tissue analysis. The most uh, invasive tissue analysis you can done is you can do, and also the most accurate is actually a liver sample on a horse, which obviously, unless we have something really, really, really big and critical going on, is not something that I would recommend. There are far too many risks involved with taking a liver sample. Now, 
The next thing I prefer is a hair tissue sample. And there's a really specific way you have to take that sample and send it in. Um, It's not very expensive. I do include that in my nutrition consults for people who are stateside uh, in the United States. Um, I believe I can do it for people who are out of the United States, but it takes a little bit more work. So definitely, if you're outside the US, reach out to me before you grab that consultation. But um, I do it for both my virtual consults and my in-person barn calls. And I do prefer that because nutrition for a horse and a human for that matter, is not about what you ingest or what the horse ingests. It's about what you can digest and put to use in your body, what's bioavailable for you. And so one way to look at that is by analyzing the hair. Now, there's all sorts of things that could go wrong with hair tests. But if you're in general, if you are diligent about the way you collect it and send it in and the timing, you should get a rather accurate reading for not only the minerals in the horse's body, but also heavy metal toxicity. A lot of people don't think of heavy metal toxicity and how that can have an impact on the neurologics, the biomechanics, uh, the overall health of the horse, the way the horse is integrating nutrition, because they think, well, if the water's safe for me to drink, then it's safe for the horse to drink. But let's just take something like lead, where there's lead in our waters, quite likely. Um, there's a minimum acceptable amount that's allowable by the government. But humans, ideally, I hope you're drinking at least a gallon of water a day. I know some of you aren't. If you're not, this is your sign. Go drink a gallon of water every single day. More than that, if you are more than 150 pounds. Um, but you have to think of that compared to the eight gallons that a horse drinks. Uh, And so there is a much higher uh, exposure to lead or cadmium or whatever else that horse is drinking. And that's just if they're drinking out of your water trough. If they're drinking out of the creek in the field, and you're like me, and you live amongst crop producing farms, my crop is hay, so I don't have, um, (laughs) we, we don't fertilize, we do organic hay, but the farms on either side of us fertilize and there's a creek that runs along the back of the property. And I'm sure we get runoff through their fields to our fields. But, uh, those, those things have an impact on your horse's health. And so doing a a tissue mineral analysis allows you to see what minerals are out of balance and what you can do about them. And I actually think that is a better, most often, sometimes you need a blood level to compare it to, but most often that is a better analysis than what you're going to get with a blood level, which is just a snapshot in time. Often by the time the blood levels are off, you've got a big problem, right? Um, And then hay analysis, I do some hay analysis. Most of the barns I work with aren't buying hay in enough bulk in order to do an accurate hay analysis that matters. And even still, the hay analysis tells me what's in the hay, but it's not telling me what the horse is digesting, what the horse is absorbing, right? Same for soil. The soil is a really great place to start. You can see if there is heavy metal uh, toxicity, heavy metal contamination would be a better way to say that, or a, a particular depleted or high mineral. In a lot of places, iron is really high, for example. But the plant is the intermediary there between the horse and the soil. And then beyond that, the horse still has to pass that through their digestive system and then see 
what is available for them to pull out. So when you're looking at something like hair, it's one of the last things to get minerals. It's the same for humans too. It's one of the last things to get to get minerals. So if you have a horse whose feet are deteriorating, whose mane is easy to pull out, then you know that they might be getting just enough minerals to keep their body going, but it's not an optimal level. They likely need to supplement with that. Now, the other thing to consider, the other reason why I like you to test before you go spend a ton of money on supplements is something if you Google mineral wheel, each mineral in the body blocks another mineral, supports a different mineral. So there's always an equal and opposite reaction. And so it's actually a little bit dangerous, especially when working with an animal that can't just be like, yo, my head hurts, you know, or, or, hey, I'm feeling a little flushed after that supplement. So it's much better to test and know than to try to guess and be like, I'm going to give all this copper. Well, copper blocks zinc. So I'm going to give some more zinc. Well, then zinc blocks that, you know, this, and then calcium blocks this. And so you just want to make sure that you know what you are giving and why you are giving it. Now, there's some things that are pretty acceptable. Magnesium is something that you can pretty well um, guess, just like humans, actually, that horses need, that every horse needs. Magnesium glycinate or glycinate, tomato, tomato, uh, specifically. So that's really why I prefer that test. It's relatively inexpensive. And I feel like it's a better place to start because often we don't have to do any more testing. Now, sometimes we'll see something so weird or we'll see nothing and we're like, eh, we better do some other tests. But most often that's that's why I like to start with that hair tissue mineral analysis test. The next question comes from Gina. Gina says, hey, Audrey, thanks for your podcast. I listen to every show. Thank you, Gina. That makes my day. I have a question. We had a body worker out and she told me to do backing up the hill exercises and belly lifts every day for my horse with kissing spine. What do you think about these exercises? Well, Gina, thank you for writing in. And I'm sure your body worker has the utmost amazing intentions. And I'm sure she's very, very talented. I'm assuming it's a she might not be I'm assuming that they let's call them they are very, very talented. But I would assess the pectoral muscles, the thoracic sling, the brachiocephalic and the sternocephalic muscles before doing a bunch of belly lifts or daily belly lifts. And certainly before doing any hill work, any intentional hill work like that. If you are doing those exercises on a horse with kissing spine, that has a collapsed thoracic sling. And I can almost guarantee you feel free to submit pictures if you want, I'll take a look. I can almost guarantee you that that horse has a collapsed thoracic sling, a weak thoracic sling. And when you ask for core, the flexion of the core, does it does it spread the spinous processes apart? Absolutely. But you are strengthening dysfunction in that without a strong and stable connected thoracic sling, they cannot maintain that activation properly. So rather than starting with belly lifts and all those things, my suggestion to you is to teach them how to deactivate their neck, how to activate their pectorals, 
activate that thoracic sling. And when that thoracic sling is activated, the core automatically activates. Okay, so you can't activate the thoracic sling without activating the core and you're teaching the horse to do it themselves, rather than just doing crunches. In the same regard, if if a human came to me and said, Audrey, how can I get a washboard abs? How can I heal my back pain? It wouldn't be crunches at all. Like none. It wouldn't be crunches. It wouldn't be hill work, right? It would be deep core work starting at the ribs, the diaphragm, going to the pelvic uh, pelvic floor for humans, right? So it's the same thing in horses. So I would suggest not doing that at all. Uh, you, you can send a picture and I'll take a look and just say yes or no that you do need to work on thoracic sling before you do any of those things. You can do what's called carrot stretches to the left and to the right uh, in between the legs, but don't do the butt tucks where they tickle, tickle, tickle the butt, have them curl their butt under, and don't do the belly lifts. Those can be done as part of like a therapeutic one-off bodywork session, but those are not to do every single day. I hope that helps. Let me know if I can help further. All right. Our last question of the day comes from Layla. And Layla dropped this uh, question on Instagram. And she wants to know, what are some long-term effects of tie-back surgery? And and specifically, she's talking about vagus nerve, digestion, etc. So if you don't know what tie-back surgery is, um, horses that are roarers, uh, they make kind of an unusually loud noise as their breathing becomes faster and deeper and more labored while they're exercising. Um, It's caused by sort of, I'm going to say in conventional veterinary medicine, it is caused by the uh, cartilage in the throat around the windpipe becoming paralyzed. And usually it's on one side, hemiparesia on one side, and it kind of partially blocks the airway. It doesn't open like it's supposed to when the, the oxygen need, the need for oxygen increases with exercise. Uh, So instead of being open, that airway becomes sort of retracted as the horse breathes. Interestingly, studies show that this occurs more often on the left side, and they call it laryngeal hemiplegia. Now, as Layla asked, the common treatment for that is tieback surgery. And in tieback surgery, what they're generally doing or what they are doing, not generally, is they are pulling that cartilage to one side and they're suturing it. And it keeps the airway open so that they're always able to maintain that flow of air. Now, in some some horses, the vocal cords actually end up getting removed as well because they feel like that increases the airflow and reduces the noise as the horse breathes. You find this a lot with racetrack horses in general. That tends to be where this is. And some studies even show that horses that it's in like three to 5% of thoroughbreds that are bred for the track. Now, if you look at the numbers from surgery, from from how often the surgery is successful, it's successful about 40% of the time. The surgery is successful in about 40% of the time. And the way they're measuring that is that 60% of the horses that have it have to retire from racing because of side effects from the surgery within two years. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a touchy subject because, <laughs> because having this tieback surgery absolutely has an impact. The vagus nerve basically innervates the same area as this surgery 
uh, as the surgery occurs. And as you know, the vagus nerve is responsible for regulating the heart rate and keeping the gastrointestinal tract in working order. It carries sensory information from other organs back to the brain. And it's also known as the inflammatory nerve. Now, like I said, this is going to be a less than popular opinion, because what happens is these horses begin to roar. They're often performance horses, generally racing horses, not always. And so the option becomes because we treat horses like sports equipment, What is the fastest way that we can get this horse back on the track? What is the fastest way that we can recover our investment? And while I have empathy for that, what I would suggest, and I really tried to find some literature to support this in horses, I can find literature to support it in humans. And I do know that generally, when we make a statement about an equine health statement, it's Usually that a study has occurred in humans and may or may not have occurred in horses, not the other way around. We tend to transpose to pull over what is true for a human uh, for a horse just on a bigger scale. Sometimes that works out in our favor and sometimes it doesn't. But what I would propose is that instead of having a 40%, the number was actually 38%, but a 40% success rate for helping the horse go on to have a fruitful career or continue living a normal life, avoid the surgery and instead look at the root cause of the dysfunction, the root cause of the nerve dysfunction. I guarantee you will find that it is similar to what the the root cause is for human nerve dysfunction. Nutrition, inflammation, toxins and stress play a role in nerve dysfunction, period. And it's the same for horses. And so you have to analyze what's going on. I assure you that that is not the only issue this horse has. It might be being masked with medication. It might be being trained out of the horse, but that is not the only issue the horse has. So if we could take a different approach, it would probably take the same amount of time and recovery time, you could avoid the vagus nerve damage. I do know that we see a much higher rate of gastrointestinal problems, tying up colic, all of these things with horses that have had surgery for tie back. So instead, I would say take an approach of body work, what is impinging those nerves? Could it be in the brachial plexus, which also comes near innervating that area? Could it be a vagus nerve impingement? What other signs can you pull from to see what could be causing this horse's issue? Stress, which is probably a a huge one for racehorses. Not probably, I know it is because I own two off the track horses, (laughs) that stress is a huge problem for them still, even in their, you know, 20 acres to roam free. So I would encourage a different approach, even though it's not going to be it's going to be the more financially obscure approach because the people who are having tie back surgeries are generally the people who have invested a whole lot of money in those animals. The roars is can be caused by a genetic. It seems to be passed down a little bit genetically, but we know through the study of epigenetics that without the the improper nutrition and the high stress and the toxins, we know that we can flip those switches on and off and having a genetic predisposition. So a family tree of having the um, laryngeal hemiplegia does not mean that 
you are guaranteed or your horse is guaranteed to have that same issue. Of course, there is body work that can be done there as well with uh, diaphragm release and really examining the tack that we use and ensure that we're not compressing the diaphragm or other areas, the psoas, other areas that can send signals to the vagus nerve. So in short, (laughs) I got on a little soapbox there and probably didn't even answer your question because what you asked for was some of the long-term effects, not what do I think of the surgery, but I got a little derailed. But the long-term effects are essentially vagus nerve impairment, which then translates just like everything else. The front end translates, the, the back end compensates for the front end, right? So when you are having when you have tie back surgery, you have a cascade of effects that now we have manually gone in and changed the horse's body. And so now we will be continuing to fight the impacts of that. We can start by looking at just the vagus nerve damage and how it changes the signaling from the brain to the rest of the organs and the organs back to the rest of the brain, depending on how careful the surgeon's hands were. We can look at the di- we can look at the diaphragmatic changes where you can have some fascial tightening around the diaphragm, tightening around the diaphragm, and now the horse cannot expand their rib cage as they normally would. You can see the spinal integrity start to decrease because that diaphragm goes all the way around the underside of their stomach. Sort of, it kind of goes through the middle, right? But it's a key part in being able to activate the core from the thoracic sling. And so you can see how that one little invasion (laughs) begins to cascade from the front end of the horse all the way down to the back end of the horse. It hasn't been studied well in horses, but we do know that tampering with the vagus nerve in an inflammatory way for humans causes ulcers, acid reflux, unexplained weight loss and fluctuations in blood sugar, which in horses would translate to ulcers, to being a metabolic horse, to having bouts of laminitis and founder. And, and here's a big one for you, vagal nerve can, vagal nerve inflammation uh, from something like a tieback surgery can lead to arthritic symptoms. So that's, that's one to investigate uh, if you're working with a horse that has had tieback or if tieback surgery is on the table for your horse. But know this, know this, if your horse has roars and hasn't had tieback surgery yet, listen, you've got to find the root cause because doing the surgery doesn't change whatever is causing the issue to happen. So for a human, if you have a heart attack and you go have a quadruple bypass or have a stent placed, that saves your life in the moment. Now, tie back is not necessarily a life-saving surgery in most cases, but it is, I guess, if you were going to retire the horse. <laughs> but um, you are masking the symptoms by having that surgery. Now, should you have that surgery to save your life if you have a heart attack? Absolutely. But know that it doesn't end there. If you don't make the changes in your environment, in your toxicity load, in your nutrition, in your stress, then you're just going to have another heart attack. It's the same for horses. If you have the tieback surgery without addressing whatever caused that to become paralyzed, whatever caused that gene to be uh, turned on from that horse's genealogy, then that problem is just going to manifest itself in a different area of the body. And it it happens every single time. So 
Layla, I hope that answered your question. I did go on a little bit of rant there, so I apologize. But listen, y'all, I thank every single one of you who reach out to me, who have been sending all your love for the podcast. I never imagined that so many people were interested uh, in learning about the stuff that I'm so passionate about. So um, a really big heartfelt thanks. And I will see you guys next week. I'm always rooting for you and your horses. Next week, we are talking about EPM. And well, we're talking about the terrain and your horse's immune system and how EPM plays a part in it, because I have had the same conversation about three times this week. So we're going to talk about it next week on the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated. We'll catch you in the next episode.